0: All right, well, hey, listen, welcome to week three of our series on the basics of praying. We, um, we've been telling you that this series on Sunday mornings is complementing another series that we're in as a church on Wednesday nights. We're going through a book by Paul Miller called A Praying Church. And then really it's a study um, about the church recapturing the importance of corporately praying together, and, um, and by the way, we got about three more weeks of that study, you're more than welcome to come in, just drop in on that thing because um, every week we're just discussing a section of the book and we're praying, spending some, some extra time in prayer together, and so we would love for you to come and be, you don't even have to have the book, just come and engage in the conversations and the prayer time um, now this series, on Sunday mornings, again, we're looking at the basics of our prayer life, the, the who, what, when, where, why, the five W's from school, right? Um, and so the first week, we looked at the who of our prayers, and we determined that who we pray to is more important than what we pray for. And the reason is because the what is always changing, Right, The what we pray for is always moving in our lives, but God doesn't move. God is constant, God is firm, God is forever. And then Jesus told us that first week we studied Matthew, or actually we looked at Luke 11, but Jesus said that when we pray, we should pray like this, our heavenly Father. And so he begins introducing to us who we should be praying to. So we don't pray to some distant deity. We actually pray to the perfect sovereign Lord who gives us his spirit and adopts us as his children so that now we can call him Abba, Father. Father. God is not just a good father, he is our good father. It's personal, it's intimate, it's no longer just Lord, it's my Lord. And the big idea last week, all right, because last week we looked at the what, when, and where of our prayers, we tackled three of the W's last week, and the big idea was this, that we pray about everything, and we pray about everything all of the time, and we pray about everything all the time, wherever we are, and learning to do that, and it's not just a discipline that we need to learn, it's a desperation we need to learn to live within. And everything we pray about is to be motivated more by God's glory than our good, and uh, if I was being honest with you, this was my big Takeaway from last week. It's kind of began to change the way that I even view how I pray because praying, remember Ephesians last week, Ephesians 6, praying in the Spirit or praying with the Spirit means that we're praying in step or in unison with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's priority is always God's glory. Remember that from last week? Not our safety, God's glory. Not our health, God's glory. Not our prosperity, God's glory. So learning to pray for everything, all the time, everywhere, for the glory of God is to become our priority too, if we're going to pray and step with the Holy Spirit. And here's the question we asked last week, how will Jesus be made big if or when God answers your prayers? If God was to answer the prayers that you are asking him right now, how is Jesus glorified? And that will begin to reveal, are our prayers glorifying to God or glorifying to ourselves? Here's what we said last week. That might not change what we pray for, but it should probably change how we pray those prayers. So today... We're going to look at the last of the five W's. We looked at who, what, when, where. Today we look at why. So let's get started by just asking the question, why should we pray? Right? Have you ever even stopped to answer that question, to ponder it? Why should I pray? And there's probably as many answers to that question if we just kind of go around the room. Everybody would have probably a different answer of why we should pray. Pray. Why do we pray? Is it because we want something from God? I mean, maybe it's because we really need something that's out of our control, so we pray because we don't know what else to do. Or how about this answer since we're in the Bible Belt? I pray because Mama said I should. Or I pray because the church says I should. Or maybe I pray because the Bible tells me so, and that's true. The Bible tells us as believers, as followers of Jesus, that we should pray. Or maybe you pray because you believe this, prayer moves God. We have lots of examples of that through the scriptures, don't we? If you were to look through just the Old Testament, I wrote down some examples here in 1 Kings chapter 18. You have this prophet Elijah, and he, he walks up to this altar, and he's, he's in this challenge with the prophets of Baal. Remember this story in the Old Testament? He, he walks up to the altar, and he, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately it says, fire. The Lord flashed down from heaven and it burned up the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell down their faces to the ground crying out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord is God. And come on, we want to see God move like that again. Let's just be a little honest. We would like to be able to call fire down from heaven. It's probably good that we can't, but we would like that kind of power. We, listen, we want others to see such a powerful movement of God that they fall to the ground crying, The Lord is God. And then you got in 2 Kings chapter 20, we have this king named Hezekiah, and he became deathly ill. And the prophet Isaiah went to visit him, and he, he gave Hezekiah this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover from this illness. And when Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you. And have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and he wept bitterly. And Before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, you tell him this. This is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. I will heal you. And in three days from now, you're going to get out of bed and you're gonna go to the temple of the lord and come on we want to see a movement of God like that again. We want God to hear our prayers and to see our tears and heal the things that are ailing us and ailing those that we love. And then there's this other story in 1 Samuel, this woman by the name of Hannah, she has deep anguish. She's crying bitterly as she, pray, as she prays to the Lord. Here's her prayer. And she made this vow, O oh Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. And he he will be yours for the entire lifetime and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord his hair will never be cut and verse 19 if you skip to verse 19 the entire family got up early in the morning and they went to worship the Lord once more and then they returned home to Ramah when Elkanah slept with Hannah the Lord remembered her plea and in due time she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel for she said I asked the Lord for him. And we desire for God to do a movement like that, again, where miraculous things happen, like he, God opens wombs, and God heals diseases. And God answers prayers. And then there's Moses. Remember this story? Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. And all the people, to to get the Ten Commandments, and all the people down below got tired of waiting on Moses, so they did their own thing, which turned into the worship of a golden calf, and they had this big orgy. And and God knows, Moses doesn't know what's going on, but God knows what's going on. And, And in Exodus chapter 32, the Lord says to Moses, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone. Step aside, Moses. Let my fierce anger blaze against them. I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God, O oh, Lord, he said, Why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power, such a strong hand? Why the, let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with, an, with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger God. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. And I just, before we read the rest, it's pretty remarkable. What a remarkable prayer by Moses. Because Moses, listen, these people were a pain in Moses' body. They complained against Moses. They tried to get Moses fired. We need a new leader. And listen, 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 listen. If God said, Moses, step aside for a moment, let me just smite them all, and then we're going to start all over. If I was Moses, I might have went, thy will be done, Lord, because these people are a pain. Yet Moses is pleading for their lives In fact, he goes on to say this, verse 13, Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster that he threatened to bring upon his people. And listen, we want... We want to see God move like that again, where the prayers of his people hold back the wrath of his anger against those that are living in rebellion, and the reason why we want God to hear those prayers is because some of that's our family, our moms, our dads, our sons, our daughters, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, our neighbors, our bosses, our co-workers. We need to plead for God be patient in his kindness of drawing them in. You see, we want, so, so my point in using all of those stories is, yeah, maybe we pray because we believe that prayer moves God. We do believe that. And perhaps that's what we need. Maybe we need a movement of God in our church. Maybe maybe you need a movement of God right now in your own family or in your own life. But, but listen to me, what about the times Prayers are prayed and God doesn't seem to move. What about the times we pray for fire to fall and it doesn't? What about the times we pray for a baby and the pregnancy doesn't come? What about the times we pray for deliverance and it's nowhere to be found? Or we pray for a life to be spared and it wasn't? That's the message we often read in the Psalms. The psalmist often is asking God, God, where are you? I can't find you. I can't feel you. I don't see any miracles. I don't see any deliverance. I don't see any power. What are we to do then? We pray. We just keep praying. Because what if the agenda of prayer is not just to move God towards us, but to move us towards God? You see, prayer re-centers us on the truth that we are not the center of anything and that God is not just a genie in a bottle waiting to grant our every wish. Prayer is our confession that we are desperate and that we are dependent on someone greater than ourselves. And if that's true, then the lack of prayer in our lives would be a confession that we just aren't desperate enough for God. Of course, come on, believer, we would never say that, out loud at least. But we are believing that, and we live that as if it's true when prayer is absent from our lives. So let's return to a passage that we looked at last week, and we're gonna just kind of dive a little bit more into this in Philippians chapter six, our chapter four, verse six. I remember this. We said we we're gonna come back to this. I just want to look at it real quick. Look at the first four words that Paul gives us in Philippians four, chapter four, verse six. The apostle Paul says, "Don't worry about anything." Now, how many of us have that mastered? None of us? Nope. Worry runs rampant, doesn't it? And Christians are not immune. Most of us struggle on some level with fear or worry or anxiety, and yet Paul seems to be pretty adamant here to the church. Don't worry about anything. So, okay, Paul, how would you suggest we go about that? Well, you already know the answer. Don't worry about anything instead. Which seems to suggest that Paul is about to recommend a replacement for our worry. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So Paul tells us not to be consumed with worry because no matter how hard we try to worry our worry away, we can't. In fact, you know this. I know this. The more we try really hard not to focus on what we shouldn't worry about, the more we are prone to worry about it. (laughs) So Paul tells us not to worry by directly connecting our worry to our praying. How does that work? Does that mean that every time we pray, God removes the object of worry from us immediately? No, Sometimes our prayers are meant to take our eyes off of the problem in the midst of the problem so that we can focus on God through the problem. Prayer ultimately reveals to us who is sitting on the throne of our hearts. Prayer reveals is it Jesus who's ruling over my life or is it me? It's trying to rule over my own heart and life because we will either cast our cares, as Jesus told us last week, or Peter did, uh, we will either cast our cares at the feet of Jesus or if we're trying to rule, we cling to our cares ourselves. You see, one of those leads to worry. The other leads to worship. What we focus on is what we'll draw near to. So when our problem becomes bigger than our God, we have a perception problem. And our perception problem will always lead to a praying problem. So worry is a red flag that our problem has become bigger to us than our God. So Paul tells us, don't worry. Pray. Worry about anything, pray about everything because prayer reminds us that He that is in us is greater than anyone or anything in the world. Prayer preaches to our hearts that God is bigger than our worry or our fear or our anger or our depression. And then, Paul, we won't spend time there because this is where we talked last week, but Paul tells us how to pray there in that verse, in the rest of verse six. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he has done. Great model for prayer. Ask and praise. Ask and praise. We talked about that last week, so again, I'm not gonna spend time, but just tell God what you need and thank God for what he's done. Then, verse seven, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. In other words, This kind of peace is different from any kind of peace that this world can offer us. Paul goes on to say, his peace will guard your hearts and will guard your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say that God's peace prevents us from life circumstances that tempt us to worry. It says that God has peace that will guard our hearts and minds as we live or as we face those very life circumstances. You see, the key to a worry-free life is a peace-filled life, and prayer is the conduit from one to the other. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is I want to look at an Old Testament story. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories I try to share it anytime it's applicable, which is try it maybe once every few years. But we're just gonna walk through one of my favorite Bible passages in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And you're gonna see everything, everything we've been talking about over the last few weeks, we're gonna see come to pass here in this one passage of scripture. So here, we're just gonna start at verse one so we'll see what's going on. It says, after this, the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Meunites declare war on Jehoshaphat. So it's really three nations against one, which doesn't seem very fair, does it? And in verse two, that goes about as well as you could plan, you, you would assume it would. Messengers, they come to King Jehoshaphat, and they tell him, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. Look at, on at verse three. And Jehoshaphat was what? Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. Of course he was. You want to know why? Because he was human, just like you and me. Let's not try to disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament characters. They were just like us. When they get news, they are tempted to be terrified. They are tempted to worry and be depressed and be discouraged. Here's what King Jehoshaphat did. He begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all of the towns, they came to Judah. They came from Judah or of Judah to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You pray. And it helps when you're the king and you can declare or decree that everybody else is going to pray to. And so we get this idea that everybody is in Jerusalem Seeking the Lord Verse 5 Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem In front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord And he Prayed I love it I love that it says And I'm I'm glad it doesn't say this And he preached I'm glad it doesn't say And he gave a William Wallace-like Motivational war speech the king, the one everybody else looked to. What are we going to do, king? He stands before all the people. And he prays. And here's what he prays, verse 6. Oh, Lord God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful, and you are mighty, and no one can stand against you. Don't miss this. Notice how he starts his prayer. He's starting with the who. He's starting with who God is. And by the way, that wasn't to remind God of who he was. That was a moment of reminding the people as he spoke to God God, this is who you are. No one can stand with you, no one can stand against you. You are great. Verse 7, O our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when, you, when your people Israel uh, was alive? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and they built this temple to honor your name. And they said, whenever we are faced with calamity such as war or a plague or famine, we can come and stand in the presence of before this temple where your name is honored and we can cry out for you to save us and you will hear us and you will rescue us. So I love this because you know what Jehoshaphat's doing? He's practicing what Paul gave us in Philippians 4, 6. Hey, first of all, be reminded of who God is. Now, be reminded of what God has done. I love it. What should we pray when we don't know what to pray and the vast armies are approaching? We just pray the promises of God. Verse 10, he's continuing the prayer. And now see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You would not let our ancestors invade those nations when Israel left Egypt. So they went around them and they did not destroy them. Now see how they reward us. For they have come to throw us out of your land, which you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? Hear the desperation. We are powerless against that mighty army that is about to attack us. And we do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help you ever prayed that prayer I want you to hear the desperation in his words they are reminded of who God is next in the prayer they are reminded of what God has done and what his promises are to do in the midst of their desperation verse 13 and as all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives, you get in this picture, and their children, the families are there, they're, they're desperate. If God doesn't do something, they're dead. Would you be terrified? Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there, his name was Jehaziel, and then I won't read the rest of his, geography. <laughs> Verse 15, he said this, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle, it's not yours, but God. And that had had to be so encouraging for the king. And that had to be so encouraging for the people. And we feel that. Listen, we feel the weightiness of life when we forget that the battles are not our own. In fact, it's when we start to believe that the battle is ours, that the, the weight of those things, the weight of those battles, the weight of those problems, the weight of those, you fill in the blank, begin to just... Bog us down. Someone here today probably needs to hear this, but the battle's not yours. It never was. It's God's. The problem, it's not your responsibility, but trusting God in the midst of the problem is. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the battle is our Lord's. And then he continues to give this message from the Lord, verse 16. Tomorrow, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march out against the army. Uh, No? We're going to hunker down right here. God, we're going to trust that you're going to take care of that before they get through the walls. No, 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 here's here's what I want you to do. I want you to march out against them. You're going to find them coming up through the... Ascent of Ziz, the end of the valley that opens to the wilderness of and But you will not even have to fight. I want you to take your position. Then I want you to stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. And then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, and they worshiped the Lord. And this is our response. When we are reminded of who God is, and what he has done. And all of the promises that he has given us. We worship him even before we see the victory. We, we worship him. Verse 19. I love this because I just get this picture of the entire nation vowing. And then you got this group of Pentecostals, the Levites, the clans of Kohath and Korah. They stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. So I just got this idea that there's this rumbling, and then people start to stand on their feet and shout to the Lord. God, you are good. God, you are glorious. God, you are great. And I just want to remind us That this worship service, this praise session, nothing has changed physically for the king and his people. There is still an army that is great marching towards them. Something happened. Something's already happened in this story. You know what it is? Their perspective changed. When they got the news of the, of the armies, their eyes were on the armies, and they were terrified. And now their eyes are on the Lord, and they're worshiping him. I mean, shouldn't they be sharpening their swords? Shouldn't they be practicing up on their skills? They are, on their faces before the Lord and praising him. Verse 20 Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and he said, Listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. That's a good king. That's a good leader. As you're marching towards the problem, remind your people, remind each other that God is worthy, that he is faithful, that we can trust him, that we can believe him. Believe in the Lord your God And you will be able to stand firm Believe in the prophets And you will succeed The king was calling his people To rest in God's promises That were yet to unfold Which is pretty amazing It's easy to praise God After the promises are fulfilled Right? But here they are challenged to trust God For not yet fulfilled promises That's what God Calls us to do by the way Faith, faith is trusting that God will come through even when there's no evidence yet that God is going to come through. That's faith. And then verse 21, after consulting the people, the king appointed the singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And I always make a joke at this part of the story. There's two options. There's two things going on here. One of two things going on here. Number one, Jehoshaphat, just to make sure that the Lord's with them, wants to send out the, the people that are expendable first. <laughs> uh, choir, okay, choir first, choir first, in case um, God takes out a few of our people to remind us you know, that he's in charge. So, choir up front. Okay, that, that's probably not what's happening here. <laughs> or, two, here's the option. Man, what a great king. He stands before his people and he says, Believe the Lord. And then he says, choir up front, we're singing into our problem. (laughs) We're praising towards the problem. As I put that together this week, you know what it reminded me of? Right after the Passover with Jesus and the disciples, and he already knew what was going to happen. He already knew what was waiting for him in the garden, the betrayal, the arrest, the cross. And it says, as they left the upper room, they left praising and singing hymns. And the disciples didn't have a clue, but Jesus had a clue, and he still prayed towards, the, or he praised towards the cross. And this is what they sang: "Give thanks to the Lord, His faithful love endures forever." Man, that is easy to sing here. But I just want you to imagine there's a, there's a group out there that's ready to riot against our church. Hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to do us damage. It's easy to sit in here and sing, the Lord's in love. No, no. Tony, get your guitar. You'll Lead us towards them singing His love endures forever. We're like, no, nope, we're staying right here. But that's what they're singing towards their problem. And watch this, verse 22. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. What? The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and they killed every one of them. And after they destroyed the army of Syria, they began attacking each other. How do you explain that? You can't. We can't explain that. When God's people cry out to Him and trust Him by praising Him through the problem, by praising Him through the pain, God shows up. And somehow, some way, they didn't know how, they didn't know when. They were, just obe- they were just being obedient to God as they marched towards maybe death. <laughs> so you get this picture that the king behind the choir <laughs> is leading his people over the hill. And in verse 24, so it says, So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, All they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. And King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days Collected all And on the fourth day They gathered in the valley of blessing Which got its name That day Because his people praised And thanked God there It is still called the valley of blessing Today and church I want to encourage you with this Because of Jesus Because of Jesus's Willingness to walk Through the valley of death, we get to walk through the valley of blessing, even in the midst of the problem. I love the psalmist when he says, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll never forget forget the illustration of a, a boy that went to his dad and says, what does that mean? And they were driving down the road, and as this big old semi drove by, the The shadow of that semi darkened their vehicles that went by and the father asked the son, well, let me ask you, son, would you rather get hit by the semi or by the shadow of the semi? Because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, no matter what your problem looks like, here's what you need to understand. It's just a shadow. Jesus has taken the hit for us, by dying on the cross, taking God's wrath upon himself, so that you and I, in the midst of our problems, let's not pretend there's not problems today, but we're not focusing on our problems. We're focusing on the God that has declared us his sons and daughters, and we will walk through this valley as a valley of blessing. Verse 27, then all of the men returned to Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat leading them, overjoyed that the Lord had given them victory over their enemies. They marched into Jerusalem to the music of harps, lyres, and trumpets, and they proceeded to the temple of the Lord, because they hadn't forgotten whose battle it was. And they returned, praising the God of victory. And then I love this, here's the end of the story, I love this, verse 29. Verse 29. And when all the surrounding kingdoms heard what the Lord had done himself, that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, the fear of God came over them. So Jehoshaphat's kingdom was at what? Peace. I would argue this. His kingdom was at peace marching towards the armies. How else can you explain singing and praising? as you're going to face a vast army. So Jehoshaphat's kingdom was at peace for his God had given him rest on every side. And this was a peace that passes all understanding because this is a peace that only comes from the Lord. And here's my question. Did God remove the king and his people from the problem? No. No. In fact, he had them march towards their problem. But what did he do? He guarded their hearts and he guarded their minds through it all. Sound familiar? Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank God for what he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Why do we pray? Because it reminds us that we belong to the Lord and that his peace in us can be found in our surrender to his will for us we don't need to be disease free to experience God's peace and we don't need to have enough money to live comfortably to be at peace and we don't have to have everything go just the way we have it planned for us to experience God's peace that's world's peace Jesus invites us to his table to partake of his body, the very body he laid down for the sins of the world. It was Jesus who gave us the example to ask our Father for anything. Do you remember this? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup of death, let this cup of your Wrath being poured out on me. Let this cup be passed from me. But then we praise God and we leave the result up to him by saying this. But it's not my will. Your will be done. And maybe you've never thought of it this way, but but hear this. Jesus didn't get what he asked for. The cup cup didn't pass from him. Jesus didn't get what he asked for because we needed his offering for our sin. So we're gonna come to the table this morning submissive to the same will, to the same Father. We ask God for what we need and then we praise God for what he And what has he done? He has given us his only son, Jesus, who offers us the very peace from heaven. In John 16, the latter part of verse 33, here's what Jesus says. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Do you know what the first part of that verse says? I am telling you this so that you may have peace in me. So we thank God for peace that we have because of Jesus.
1: the god of jacob whose love endures through generations i know that you will keep your I need you now to do the same thing for me.